Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Hello, everybody, and welcome to uh, another edition of the Bunker Books podcast. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Chris Clark, who is the author of a book. Anyone who is trying to understand what has gone on on the British left, I think ought to read, called The Dark Knight and the Puppet Master. It's an account, uh, I think the best way to describe it, Chris, of distortions in left-wing thinking and how they work against ever getting a left-wing government in Britain. Would you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. It's um, The book is, I guess, it's a, a, a polemic criticising left-wing populism, as I call it, and specifically criticising some of the, the, the myths and narratives which I think prevent truly progressive politics from, from succeeding uh, and which often tend to dominate thinking on, on the left. Before we go any further, I, I can imagine some of our listeners uh, wrinkling their nose and harumphing at the very notion of left-wing populism exists because Jeremy Corbyn didn't look like Donald Trump or Viktor Orban. Why would you say what's happened in Britain is populism comparable to what's happened in uh, America, Hungary, Venezuela? Well, I wouldn't say it's as extreme as those sorts of populisms clearly it's i wouldn't say i'm certainly not saying that um corbyn was a, a kind of chavez um and nor would i say that boris johnson's necessarily a victor orban what i'm looking at in the book is that the as i see it the narratives which underline populism uh, and i look specifically at three narratives in the book one is the first is the myth of the other the second is the myth of the all-powerful puppet master and the third is the the kind of nostalgia and according to that definition of populism, which is what I set out in the book, I very much would say that Corbynism fed into and fed from those kind of populist ideas. So, um, yeah, I very much think that left populism can take a left wing form just as much as a right wing form if it buys into those narratives. How did you come to write it? How did you come to be so involved in the Labour Party? Well, I've done various sort of jobbing kind of Labour Party jobs, mainly being acting as a press officer for Labour politicians or prospective politicians and, and have been a kind of door knocker and leafleter uh, elections and things like that. But I, I guess I wrote the book from the perspective of a, a person who was intensely frustrated, a kind of ordinary Labour member and, and supporter, I suppose, who was intensely frustrated with the direction of travel, particularly after 2015. I'd worked as a press officer in, in South Thanet, Nigel Farage's target seat for, for Labour uh, in the 2015 election. And I, I came back and I was just, you know, really concerned by the shift that seems to be taking place and by the rise of rise of Corbynism. And it, the, the book emerged because I think at that point in 2015 and actually all the way through as it continued, the question of where the centre-left and the far-left really disagreed 
um, was one that no one could quite put their finger on. No one, it was kind of like nailing, nailing jelly to a wall. But, and you'd have conversations with people who, in terms of their core principles, in terms of the kind of ideal society they'd like to see, were no more or less progressive than you, but were, you know, really enthused by Corbyn and you were absolutely kind of horrified by the prospect of a Corbyn Labour leadership. So my kind of central hypothesis that brought the book about was that the difference really lay somewhere else. It wasn't about just degrees of radicalism that one person wanted a, you know, top rate of tax that was sort of... 60 percent wrong 50 percent it was it was about much more than the substance of the difference between these two wings of politics it was it was about these these narratives and the places i would find real disagreement with the you know corbyn corbynite left friends of mine or you know when you were watching debates between corbyn supporters and non-corbyn supporters on uh on on social media or on question time or wherever it might be it was frequently at the level of narrative Let, let's give people some idea of, of those narratives let's go through them all first the dark night that is seeing your opponents as just evil yeah it's so each of these myths they can be stronger or weaker but the dark night is the idea that essentially that the political spectrum is a moral spectrum and that the left is at the good end of that spectrum so it sees essentially it sees the world in terms of good versus bad good versus evil in some cases and it sees that political spectrum as entirely morally charged so the further away from the left you are on that spectrum the more kind of uh, self-serving careerist immoral you are um, and and the less you kind of care about society or care about uh, care about other people so it sees politics in those terms it's the politics of the kind of Tories are lower than vermin um, to use a, a much quoted example ultimately it sees politics as taking the form of being entirely based on conflict as a result of that it's a kind of righteous conflict and its precedent is set in the kind of the politics and the mindset of of class war of cold war more recently of culture war it creates a whole set of bogeymen who are villainous to their core and that you know, as a person on the left, you must almost uh, define your political identity as being on the right side of these good versus bad oppositions. Um, so that's the first one. We've got the dark night. We've got the idea that we, people on the left, are up against implacably evil forces. And then the suggestion that because we are up against evil and greed and rotten people, any tactic can be justified. Uh, can can you explain your the idea that uh, of the puppet master and how that influences thinking? Yeah, the puppet master. I think the puppet master and the dark knight conflate and overlap quite a lot. But ultimately, the puppet master is a qualitatively different idea. It's the idea that the ills of society are ultimately authored. They are inflicted on us from above for the most part, and it it essentially takes on the thinking and mentality of the idea that we we kind of live in a, a you know something close to a dictatorship rather than a a broadly functioning democracy so it's the it would be the notion of the mainstream media the msm who are who are supposedly kind of um manipulating and using pro- doing propaganda for the government it would be um you know ideas about the deep state it's in many respects it's the kind of thin end of the conspiracy theorist wedge finally the golden age Golden Age on the right is quite hard to say. Is it 1950s Britain or is it 1850s Britain? Is the Golden Age Palmerston Empire or suburban 
nuclear families, very little divorce, no abortion, no, you know, no visible homosexuality. Your golden age on the left is kind of a Ken Loach version of the 1940s. That's their lost world. Yes, completely. Um, as, as you say, like the, all three of these myths, I think, have an almost direct read across <laughs> to the right. And I suppose part of the reason I, I focused on the left was firstly, as someone on the left, it, you start with your own <laughs> kind of backyard, I suppose. And secondly, I think one key important difference to draw between right these myths when they take a right populist form and when they take a left populist form is that generally right i think right wing populism beats left wing populism most of the time the the right wing version of this is more electorally effective right wing puppet masters or dark knights make easier hornets nests to kick for want of a better analogy the left wing simply cannot provide as easy answers is not as good at providing easy answers as as the right wing and and doing that. So it's um in, it's not the correct strategy, quite aside from the rights and wrongs of it, in my view. Um, the, yeah, the golden era to explain that it's the idea of a sort of moment of original socialism that modern society has departed from, and it's the idea that we're moving into a kind of reactionary dystopia, um, which is uh that's a, a society that has kind of lost all sense of what's right, sense of what's real, um, and is kind of moving towards being a, a kind of neoliberal chrome future. So it's a an extremely sentimental recollection of the years after the, the Second World War and the post-war consensus, combined with the idea of neoliberalism being the is almost the coronary artery of this myth. And it's used not just as a an economic term, neoliberalism, but it's a very broad economic term, but it's also used to you know, foreign wars, consumerism, climate change, all of these things are grouped into this tanker that's moving in the opposite direction. I think for the left, yes, it is the sort of post-war 1945 era that's been, that is imagined. But I think it goes deeper than this in a certain way. I think even in the 1950s, people were sort of saying that the the 1945 to 51 Labour governments hadn't, you know, hadn't re- you know weren't fit, weren't fit to lace the boots of their forefathers so i think it's a, a sense of some original purpose a sense of the the kind of this this giant mission unbelievable in its ambition that we've every, everything now feels so watered down and the real world can never quite match up so it's a it's a deeper myopia than just a, a nostalgia for for three or four decades Chris, I'm so old, I remember the 1983 election when Thatcher won by a landslide, and she won, I, 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 sorry, I haven't got the figures in front of me, but I'm pretty, she won, I think she won, won majority of trade unionist votes. So this is 1983, this is Thatcher, the great figure of evil, and the years before the miners' strike, which is kind of, you know, the collagen of the, of the Labour movement, trade unionists are voting for Margaret Thatcher in very, very large numbers, and working class voters were. Because she seemed to have a better off and a better and, and a better way of running the country, so the idea that somehow it was just because Peter Mandelson and Tony Blair arrived in sharp suits that betrayed all of it is full of birds. As you say, all your intellectual faults are ways of stopping people thinking. You can't draw plans for the future. You can't really understand the past either. The myths ultimately they get in the way of true and more accurate explanations. For example, why would someone from a working class background vote? conservative and the dark knight myth gets in the way of really thinking about that trying to understand it trying to understand how you know different values different life experiences um it it allows an easy you know so blame self-interest blame you know blame uh lack of whatever it might be 
Well, people are either wicked or they're stupid and allow themselves to be manipulated by, 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 by wicked thought controllers. Um, which is, which is not a great way, great way to get their votes, really, is it? Yeah, I, I think it, it, the, these myths, in a way, a lot of the sort of discussions I've had about the book have focused explicitly on Corbynism. But I think in a more latent sense, these myths have been in, you know, oh, yeah. quite a, in, in quite a big way ingrained in, in thinking. That's why I was disagreeing with you earlier when you said, oh, well, this is just, the worst is just the far left. The far left is like the centre left, only more so in its faults. It just exaggerates them. It's not really a communist movement anymore. Often it just exaggerates the vices that are prevalent everywhere in the liberal mainstream and centre-left. And you can't make, which I, I've heard a lot of lay politicians say, oh, well, Nick, you know, it's just a few nutters, it's not us. But often, as you're saying, with, with nostalgia, with uh, fake nostalgia, as fake as anything Nigel Farage offers, you can find that everywhere. It's not just a certain group of people who fall for that. I completely agree with you about that. But I think the hard left that you're talking about, I do think if you look at what happened in 2015, Corbyn came in and for people who, in my view, could see see where, what he was and where he came from, he came from that absolute hard left tradition, which was took lots of very unsavoury positions. But if you look at how that reached a much wider audience... I think these myths played quite a central role. For example, the idea of a, the glorious past of brass bands in a quite quite harmless way initially, those myths are the thing that makes that palatable and makes that link between somebody who's friends with Stalinists and and, and all of this stuff uh, that, that makes the link between that and kind of just a young idealistic student who, who wants a better world. And I think that the, the, the myths, in a way, they, they represent threads that drag people off into, in my view, the wrong wrong course. And I think Corbyn was fundamentally the wrong course. But um, So in a way, yeah, I, I'm kind of agreeing with you that, that they provide a link into ex- essentially the extremism of the far left and yeah. extreme ways of thinking for a, a perfectly decent, well-meaning person. If you don't think that the other if you don't have the Tories are lower than vermin mug on your shelf and you don't actually think that you think that the right are profoundly wrong but you don't think they're bad people then it's much more difficult for you to um you know get get lost and and follow in in, in my in the way that in my view the Corbynite left have done or the followers of Corbyn have done in the last six years okay Chris now that there's some big questions for you is the left or the Labour Party just fucked in Britain do you think I mean, left-wing, you look at the Social Democrats in Germany, uh, the Socialist Party in France. It's not just about Corbyn Blair, all of that. You look across Europe, uh, and we are a European country, despite what the government says, they're pretty screwed. Do you think that the way society's moved, and through all the faults of its own thinking that you've addressed, that Labour is just screwed in Britain now? I certainly don't think that Labour is screwed in Britain um, by any stretch. And, and in a certain respect, you mentioned earlier society becoming significantly more socially liberal. And the big realignment taking place is in large part the result of younger people being more socially liberal and in many ways more egalitarian. Um, and so I think in a certain respect, I know that you can never say, you know, the demographics, <laughs> just follow the demographics. But I think the the overall 
changes taking place in attitudes reflect a, a move towards a more progressive society in many ways. The problem is, for some reason, the left, I would say, through its reliance on these myths and through its populist ways of thinking, doesn't seem to be able to bring the rest of the country along with it. So instead you have a culture war, which is somehow progressives are, are losing, despite the fact that the country as a whole is more sort of progressive yeah. in many cases than it was 20 years, 30 years ago or something. It requires really clever thinking to, to get out of this and the electoral arithmetic of how the country's based. And, and populism just really won't cut it, basically. I think Johnson's making a big strategic mistake by getting to deep into culture war, actually. He has benefited. Yes, we are becoming more liberal, but there are discontents and contradictions. So um, I first saw it with left-wing Muslims and ex-Muslims, who suddenly found on the left you weren't allowed to criticise really theocratic, right-wing, fascistic, Islamist ideas, because that somehow was playing into the hands of George W. Bush. And so the Conservatives just had to sort of sit back a bit, but now they're becoming active and very stupid participant. I don't think Johnson knows what he's doing though. I think it plays well in the Tory press, but I, I I think there's a clever Labour Party can start painting them as intolerant and ignorant and uh, unpleasant again. Completely. And I, I think that in a certain respect, the, the, the Tories are sort of creating their own obsolescence in a, in a strange respect, because if you look at the kind of the data on the, all these blue wall seats, which will, I think, ultimately begin to shift towards Labour over a longer time scale. I think in a longer term sense, conditions are relatively good for progressives. I don't th- but in a, in a shorter term sense, there is very easy wins for the Tories through continuing to inflame this culture war uh, and continuing to, to rack up those votes in parts of the seats away from, uh, away from London. But doesn't that, in the long run, if you see that kind, doesn't that rely on Labour having a leader who's a bit like Angela Merkel rather than (laughs) I mean someone who's you know economically really quite small c conservative does some intervention but you know while being socially very liberal rather than a red-blooded Labour leader. I think it relies on two things you know these two things are almost so far away now that you might say it's not not worth discussing but I think the way that, that Labour can change the country without dividing the country, if you like, is firstly to be really strongly internationalist and and serious about internationalism, multinationalist approaches in in all the substance of things, to be looking at ways that you can work at a kind of supranatural, supranational level to deal with, you know, corporation tax, to deal with global wealth inequality to deal with climate change, all of these issues which require joined up coherent approaches. But to be given the licence to do that, the Labour or progressives need to be trusted that just because we're being very internationalist and and multilateral in our approaches, that doesn't mean the UK being changed beyond recognition. So it requires a simultaneous kind of cultural reassurance. And I don't think that cultural reassurance means being sort of kind of tub-thumpingly wrapped in the Union Jack, but it it requires showing people that you're serious, that you're sensible. And in a way, the the real tragedy of Corbynism was that he was in precisely the wrong place. So at at a kind of, um, in terms of internationally, he was actually extremely parochial, you know, a lifelong sort of 
quotes Legsiteer right up until it became very difficult for him to make the Legsit arguments in 2016, um, opposed to foreign intervention of any kind, really quite an insular politics in terms of the substance, but culturally very kind of anti-patriotic. Uh, and I think that, so the, the, the ultimate answer for Labour will be about saying how can we work to reduce inequality, reduce regional inequality, whatever it is, with other nations, because that's the level at which change now needs to take place. How can we tackle those things, tackle climate change, whilst providing the reassurance in the opposite direction? But I appreciate that right now we seem quite a long way away from that with the UK leaving the... Yeah, the not, least cause I have to, not least because I'll have to start talking about the EU again. Yes, sir, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, so, they yeah. don't want to do... Yeah, so in a in a in a basic sense, I don't think Labour's completely screwed, but I do think that that right now it is exceptionally hard, and it's going to need to perform some kind of electoral judo throw to start winning back types of voters that have not just from 2015, but really for a time beyond that, been been moving, swinging towards the Conservatives. Well, there, there you go, Chris. Thank you so much for all your time and uh, and for all your trouble. Your final message seems to be it's going to be long, hard and miserable for as far as has anyone conceived, but there may just be a glimmer of hope sometime in the early 2030s, which is by far and away the most positive message that the Bunker podcast has broadcast in years. Um, thank you so much. Um, you've been listening to The Bunker. If you've liked the show uh, please go on to your podcast dispensing site and post a good review. If you didn't, you can please keep your opinions to yourselves. There's a Patreon where you can give us a bit of money, which we desperately need to keep all these programmes going. My name's Nick Cohen. Thank you very much. The Bunker Daily was presented by Nick Cohen. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Listener.